This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Christy Shriver, and we're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit Podcast. You've heard Christy say over dozens of times, if you've listened to a lot of our episodes, that we are here to discuss books. Having said that, the word books is really being used as a synecdoche. Hmm, how do you, how do you like me using those kind of <laughs> Fancy. Uh, It's a literary word. In other words, uh, books is a word we're using to symbolize something bigger uh, of which books are just a part. And that something bigger is this concept of words, words that have moved the world and have moved us. And so um, in that spirit, this week, we are pausing from looking at traditional text and we're going to do something completely new in a new direction. We're going to look at music lyrics Specifically, my favorite rock music <laughs> lyrics, and specifically the phenomena that is known as the Foo Fighters and their music. Well, you can hear the excitement in Gary's voice. He is very excited about this. He's a guitar head and has been since childhood. He's a rock and roller. Uh, as a young teenager, he saved up his money to buy his first amp. It's so cliched, but yet it's actually the truth. Tell us your story, Gary. Oh, I did. I did everything. The Garage Band, any any stereotypical thing you can think of, I was a part of that. But when I was sixteen. Uh, I've been playing guitar for a couple of years, and uh, I had a job after school, and I went to the local bank, if you can believe it or not, and took out a loan to go to the music store and buy my first ever bass guitar and amplifier. It was like a big, huge 412 cabinet, but it was kind of a cheapy amp. Anyway, I think I got the whole thing for $125 or something like that. But you took out a loan to do it. I did, and I paid it off. <laughs> Every month. <laughs> yes, I did. Every month. Well, if you're like me, until I met Gary, I really didn't understand that playing the guitar basically is jumping down Alice in Wonderland's <laughs> rabbit hole. Uh, to parody Freud, I can't get too far away from the lip. Sometimes a guitar is not just a guitar. <laughs> Guitars are life. 
for me, the guitar was the gateway instrument into a whole new world of rock. And it was the way that uh, I discovered there was a bigger world other than the small town I grew up in. And I will add, that's not just me. Uh, Dave Grohl, who started the Foo Fighters uh, in 1995, talked about hearing the album The Record by the band Fear and wanting to become a musician. I mean, I have the same story. All of my musician friends have the same story. We heard somebody's music, and it just made us want to be a part of all that. Well, it's still a bit of a rabbit hole. I mean, just thinking about the gear, for those of us who don't know, and I didn't know, there's you can be a Gibson person, a Telecaster person, a Stratocaster person, a Gretsch person. That's just the names of the top five guitar parts that I can name off the top of my head. Never mind the amps, the pedals, the boards, the pickups, the tones. And that's not even the... The music side of it, that's just the tech side of blasting music out of that electric guitar. I have to think Michael J. Fox and Back to the Future. (laughs) But having said that, I'll, I'll quit poking fun just for a minute. If you put all those elements together... And if you're a genius, uh, you will get a ticket to transcend into this other realm we call rock and roll. Today, and this stat is an American stat, but it is current. I don't have the numbers worldwide. Today, rock is still the preferred genre of 56% of the American population. It surpasses pop, country, and rap, which I found surprising. Rock albums still account for the majority of all vinyl music sales, although they do not surpass rap or country when it comes to streaming services, which might tell you a little bit about (laughs) About the the demographics (laughs) that, that are listening to rock music. But in a world with so many things that divide us, Foo Fighters unite audiences, and they have done it with audiences that range over four generations across all nation states rock and roll the powerful unifier which is almost a worn out cliche but it's absolutely true um and you know the uncontested leading rock band in the world in 2022 is the foo fighters uh and how do we determine that well you can look at awards um they've won 12 grammys uh for one thing including best album four times you know, but awards are, are not uh, an awesome metric to measure human impact, especially for rock. But there are others. Um, you know, since Dave Grohl started his one-man band in Seattle in 1994, they have released nine albums, gone on nine worldwide tours, which each lasted over a year. And uh, Just the 2017 tour from the album Concrete and Gold consisted of 113 shows on five continents, grossing $114 million. That's just a lot of traveling. (laughs) That is a lot of traveling. You know, and uh, they've sold out the famed Wembley Stadium in London, not once, but twice, and sold it out in 24 hours. I mean, you know, that stadium holds 86,000 people. And uh, another big hint as to the enormity of their impact from their same tour was the performance at Glastonbury, where over... 150,000 people were documented singing in unison the lyrics to their song, The Best of You. Try to imagine 150,000 people singing what you wrote. I mean, anyway, their top five songs just on Spotify alone, which is only one and not even the largest of streaming services, has over 2.5 billion uh, streams. And that's just on Spotify. They have 16 million monthly listeners on Spotify 
2021, they were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame uh, the very first year they were eligible. And uh, there's no overstating the influence uh, and the passion and the commitment and the connection that this group of men, you know, led by Dave Grohl, has had over four generations of humans of all ages and races and gender from all over the world the last 25 years. I mean, literally hundreds of millions have been touched by their music, both in person and really over the sound waves, to use an old-fashioned term. But (laughs) the reality is they have a tremendously large contact with the human race. And so today, we'd like to look at the history and the music of this powerful force of positivity. And it is a force of positivity. How has this group connected and improved the lives of so many people? There are hundreds of millions of personal examples. You can read them. They're all over the internet from fans. But here's a famous one uh, that I, I think is interesting. In 1995, David Letterman, now at that time, he was a very famous late, late night comedian in the United States, and he gave the Foo Fighters their very first spotlight on television. They played a song for their album, which I'll tell you about in a minute, uh, and it was called This Is a Call. Letterman was hooked on the Foo Fighters. In 2000, in year, the year 2000, he had a quintuple heart bypass surgery. And after his recovery, he asked them to come back to New York and be on his first show back after his surgery. For him, then being with him was pu- was personal. He publicly stated on the show that night, and you can watch the you, um, the clip on YouTube, that their song Everlong was what got him through his surgery and his recovery. When Letterman retired from television... He asked them to come back again and play that song for the last few minutes of his final show after he said farewell for the last time he would ever be on late night television in that role. How did that song, this band, inspire him to fight off death as his heart struggled to regain strength? What has been the impact of their music across the globe? The answer lies in the lyrics in part. It lies in their musical talent, part. Part of it lies in the energy and the passion. It lies in their showmanship. But all of these components work together to produce a single effect. And what is that? That's what we're going to ask, because that is the power of rock and roll. Well, before we go any farther, I think the first thing we needed to explain is what exactly is a Foo Fighter? <laughs> All right. It's a it's a World War II term, interestingly enough. Uh, during World War II, uh, pilots, combat pilots, would be flying, and uh, if there were unidentified objects that they didn't know what they were, they referred to them as Foo. So they were out there Foo Fighting, stopping the potential UFOs or whatever was in the air at that time. Now, I think we could see uh, the answer to your questions by looking at this band and really just looking at three of our favorite Foo Fighters songs. Yeah, I think we can, too. Uh, What we see is that Foo Fighters in general, Dave Grohl's personal story in particular, in every way embody Camus' idea that life is best lived fighting the absurd, rebelling, but you're not just randomly rebelling. You're rebelling against meaninglessness. You're rebelling against the constant pressure to commit philosophical suicide, rebelling against death itself. Dave Grohl's life and music showcase one man's fight to do this 
in spite of pressure to conform, in spite of death and experiencing the death of friends, in spite of the heavy-handed trappings of success. Uh, And that's the gift he shares. He shares it in his lyrics, and he shares it in how he plays and how he lives his life on and off the stage. And I would like to highlight that our fascinating connection here is how Camus and Dave Grohl go together. (laughs) I mean, I think it's just a complete connection. I think you can see them as the expression of his ideal. I agree. Um, And, you know, we mentioned Dave Grohl's story first because Foo Fighters really starts with him. Um, For those who aren't familiar with that name, uh, Dave Grohl was the drummer for the rock band Nirvana. Now, if you haven't heard that name, apparently you were living under a rock in the 90s. (laughs) You know, in 94, uh, Nirvana was on top of the world with international success and Grohl became famous and Uh, You know, last week we mentioned the uh, existential song, Smells Like Teen Spirit. I mean, that's a a Nirvana song, and they absolutely radicalized rock music when their albums came out. It it ended the uh, glam metal 80s rock scene completely. Well, that might need to be an entirely other episode. I can see you get excited about it. But getting back to Grohl's story, uh, it's almost the classic Camus journey. I mean, his mother is a retired public school English teacher. Shout out to her from the suburbs of Washington, D.C. Uh, his father was a political speech writer, also from that D.C. area. A funny thing to me to think about is his mom is a Democrat and his dad is a Republican. So try to navigate that when you're a kid. <laughs> Probably dreaded dinner table discussions. Oh, my gosh. Uh, So he left this kind of suburban, highly educated lifestyle at the age of 17 and literally dropped out of high school to play the drums. Uh, He even lied about his age because he was a minor. But he auditioned and joined this band called Scream. And he lived for four years sleeping on a sleeping bag, living out of a van with the four other band members and a roadie, and, you know, playing night after night in dives of groups to uh, 20 to 200 people max. I, I can empathize. <laughs> well, that sounds kind of like a rock and roll movie. And of course, I cannot empathize. Uh, <laughs> but I, I can empathize with this. I can imagine that being a mother, his mom was not very excited about this dropping out of school and joining a band life choice. I don't yeah, know. <laughs> made good choices. Well, eventually he did. Uh, you know, um, especially since there was no guarantee any of this was going to work out. Of course, it's dangerous. It almost uh, this kind of stuff almost never does. But as Grohl tells it, stardom wasn't the end goal. He was pursuing music and a community and. The life he wanted uh, with nothing to prove, really. I mean, at one point, Scream was really struggling. Uh, He was in Los Angeles, and things were at a standstill. And um, he hears about an opening with this other band called Nirvana. Uh, It wasn't mainstream, but it was popular with the underground community on the West Coast, especially Washington State. And Dave calls a friend uh, who knows the band to try to get an audition, and he gets it. And he calls his mom to ask her if he should drop Scream and go to Nirvana. And with her encouragement... He makes the change that would launch him into a different world. So mom came through yes, despite not liking his life choices. Do. Well, she might have. I don't know. I was just, just just speculating. But Nirvana's success, clearly, as you've pointed out, is well documented. And, of course, even people who don't follow rock music can't think about Nirvana without thinking about the tragic suicide in 1994 of Nirvana's singer-guitarist Kurt Cobain. The famous Neil Young quote from his suicide note 
it's better to burn out than to fade away uh, is one thing that made the news. It's been very controversial because unfortunately it led to a lot of teenage suicide since it went public. But for Grohl, it wasn't about the publicity. It wasn't about the art. It was a personal loss. Yes. I mean, Cobain's death left him heartbroken and uh, he lived with Cobain, slept on a sofa during the early days. And he had watched Cobain struggle with depression. And he says uh, he saw him have lows and he would go to his room and not come out. But Cobain also could be incredibly fun and alive. And they traveled together and played together and worked together. And uh, he had grown to love his friend. And beyond just losing a friend with Cobain's death, Nirvana was over. And uh, David had to decide what to do. And Tom Petty, who is famous in his own right, I would like to add, uh, invited Dave to play the drums for him, but which is a, a huge offer. Just imagine it. But he decided he didn't want that. Uh, he didn't even know if he wanted to play drums anymore. Well, what he wanted to do was to carve out a new thing, make his own reality. And for him, that meant recording an album all by himself. So that's what he did. In 1995, for five days, he sat with engineers in a studio alone. He recorded the vocals, recorded the guitar parts, recorded the drum parts, and then the engineers put it all, layered it all together, one on top of the other. He wanted to make it look like it was actually a band, so he used that pseudonym, Foo Fighters. He'd been reading some stuff about UFOs, and it was on his mind, and so he just used the name. Later, when he was inducted into the Hall of Fame, it cracked me up because he had this to say. Had I actually considered this a career, I probably would have called it something else because it's the stupidest effing band name in the world. <laughs> By the way, if you listen to Grohl uh, talk on platforms, you have to edit the language if you're going <laughs> to... Quote him on for educational purposes. Grohl's passionate. He's colorful. He's funny. But there's going to be a lot of bleeps. Yes. (laughs) The point I want to make by bringing up Dave's personal history is because it's here uh, we see Grohl, like Camus, choosing to fight, fight the absurd, and choosing to fight philosophical suicide, not giving in, not giving up. He didn't conform to the suburbs because it certainly would have been an easy thing to do growing up in D.C. He didn't say, oh, nothing matters when his friend died because it does matter. Nowhere in his personal story can you find someone taking the easy way out or lying to themselves. This is a story of a child growing into a man determined to be as completely honest as possible and committed to creating meaning his own meaning in the world. And so the Foo Fighters are born. Um, This very first album was a success, and they even uh, got on the Letterman Show like we talked about. But it's the second album, The Color and the Shape, that we find one of their most enduring hits, and that's the song Everlong, and the one that Letterman had them perform when he retired. Which I find so interesting because the song isn't really about anything I would think David Letterman would like on the surface in terms of the lyrics or the history of the song. I mean, Grohl wrote it in 1996 after going through an ugly divorce. He had met a girl, Louise Post, and they just had a connection. It's kind of a funny story. He originally recorded the song at a friend's studio in D.C., playing all the parts himself, but it was rough. So when it came time to record the album, The Color and the Shape, the producer wanted to include the song Everlong. And he really thought that it brought, you know, this album of theirs, their 
you know, big album together thematically. Grohl was cool with this, but he wanted Post, the old girlfriend, to sing the real backup vocals for it because it was about her. So Post recalls, and this is from an Instagram post that she wrote, and I want to quote her. I sang these backups over the phone at 2 a.m. after being woken up from a deep sleep in Chicago by Dave Grohl, who was tracking the vocals for Everlong in L.A. <laughs> Can you imagine? Again, uh, and this is why a song is not just words. I mean, lyrics are the voice plus words. Um, and the voice, if it's good, really functions to enshrine language and elevate it uh, beyond just the content of the words. I mean, in Grohl's case, he doesn't have uh, the vocal range of somebody like Mariah Carey or even Steve Perry from Journey, uh, but the voice is action, and it's that movement that Grohl and all the Foo Fighters communicate. Grohl screams at times, but his voice is really communicating something beyond the words on the stage. I mean, what do you hear? Well... I hear authenticity. There's just authenticity to it. I heard him talking about the origins of that song, Everlong, and I was shocked when I learned that he doesn't even know how to read music. He never studied formally. He just strummed a new combination, and he heard a sound, and he wrote a song. I don't want to use the word innocence because that's not at all the right word, but it's this raw pursuit of wanting life and bringing people along like he did post. And this spirit has captivated the world. Obviously, only an authentic genius could ever, you know, self-teach yourself how to become a musician. But when you think about how songs, and this song in particular, lives in the hearts of so many, we know that the human voice holds a special place. It's a human instrument where the soul, to sound mystical, because I think it kind of is, unifies with the lungs, the diaphragm, the abs, and they do something different. And he does something different. Let's look at these famous lyrics and then talk about them. This is Everlong. Hello, I've waited here for you, Everlong. Tonight I throw myself into and out of the red. Out of her head she sang... Come down and waste away with me, down with me, slow how you wanted it to be. I'm over my head, out of her head, she sang, and I wonder, when I sing along with you, and here's the chorus part, if everything could ever be this real forever, if anything could ever be this good again, the only thing I'll ever ask of you, you've got to promise not to stop when I say when. She sang, breathe out, so I can breathe you in. And hold you in, and now I know you've always been out of your head, out of my head, I sang. And I wonder, when I sing along with you, if everything could ever feel this real forever, if anything could ever be this good again, the only thing I'll ever ask of you, you've got to promise not to stop when I say when. She sang, and I wonder, if everything could ever feel this real forever, if anything could ever be this good again. The only thing I'll ever ask of you, you've got to promise not to stop when I say when. I, I want to add a comment right here. Uh, William Shatner of Star Trek fame uh, produced a spoken word album where he would <laughs> he would read lyrics to songs like that. So anyway, it doesn't have the same effect when you just read them like that. No, uh, because the words are simple, and that's why they work as lyrics. No one has time to explicate poetry if you're at a rock concert. You have to understand it, and you have to get that idea, and it has to be in an instant. 
If you notice, there's a lot of repetition. When you just read it, it may feel a little redundant. But when you add the voice, the repetition plays a different role. It signifies the hooks and the choruses and it gives us a sense of excitement and anticipation for the next drum riff or the next energetic pulse. Well, you know, the ear is listening for something different in music than it than it listens to in poetry. And then you add signature guitar riffs to that, you have really just a different emotional experience. And I want to point out that all good music that people love is always emotional. And the song Everlong, uh, it has two versions, the version with the whole band as well as just the acoustic version. And both are powerful, but really two different experiences and the emotions are different and you know, rock music takes on a bigger life when you're there in person and the bass drum is so heavy that it's thumping you in the chest. You the, physically feel it. Yes, and the guitar is so loud it's blowing back the hair on your arms. I mean, that <laughs> adds to the whole understanding of what the music's about. Well, for sure. Uh, but Everlong, like all rock ballads, you know, clearly it's meant to be sung. Uh, the contrasting anaphoras of if everything, if everything rhyme with the following line, the only thing. And they're drawn together in your ear because of that rhyme. And they create this tension that leads you to that climactic line of feeling real. In fact, that is the central idea, whether it's in the acoustic version or the band version. you They both are giving you a universal feeling of holding on to one single moment and making that moment feel eternal holding on. Look at the word he chooses. What is real? And that is really a paradox. Eternity felt in a moment. On the surface, something that like that doesn't make sense, but it's a feeling that we've all had, or at least we want to have. And he expresses it so simply with simple words that you get it and you feel it with the drums, the bass, the guitars, the screaming vocals, the idea comes alive. And I wonder when I sing along with you, you feel the power of that line that if everything could ever feel this real forever, whether your heart pounds with that overpowering electrical guitar or with just the strumming of the acoustic one, you're inspired to hold on, to feel the moment. And that just keeps repeating. <laughs> you know, Everlong uh, is an interesting example of a hit song that grows into uh, its success over time. People liked it when it came out, but over time, it's just grown and grown to the point that it's a song everyone most wants to hear when they go to a Foo Fighters concert, um, and they end their concerts with it now. But it wasn't that way at first. Uh, if you want their first hit that really entered the Billboard Top 100, you have to go to the next album they recorded called Echoes. And the song uh, from there that we're all going to remember is one of my personal favorites because it's been in my band set list for years. <laughs> That's the song, Learn to Fly. Well, let me ask this question before we talk about Learn to Fly. What is the billboards or the Billboard Hot 100? I mean, that's the term that we use to determine success, but what is it? Yeah, you know, it's really changed over time since we've really gotten into the internet age. But Billboard is a magazine, and uh, Billboard Biz is their online extension. And what Billboard does is it tabulates the popularity of songs on a weekly basis, and sometimes the charts are genre-specific. You know, for example, you have the country chart or the rock chart, 
but they cover all genres. Um, and they the songs are ranked according to sales and streams and airplay and that sort of thing. And the Billboard Hot 100 combines all aspects of a single song performance, and that's sales and radio and airplay and all the streaming activity we talked about. And it'll take that and it ranks how successful any one song is, and it has to be a single. And interesting left, the top-rated songs on Billboard will be the songs featured on radio because they draw the audience that leads to higher advertising rates. It all works together. And, uh, you know, the song Learn to Fly actually won a Grammy for its music video, and it's hilarious. They're very funny people. (laughs) The lyrics were written not just by Dave Grohl, but by Taylor Hawkins, the drummer, and Nate Mendel. Uh, By this point in the history of the Foo Fighters, what we've seen evolve is the vision of one man, Dave Grohl, it has grown into a collective, into a brotherhood. And, you know, Foo Fighters by 1997 is no longer a one-man band. And Learn to Fly has three co-writers. Uh, there have been a couple of uh, interests and exits over the years, but not really many. And today, the Foo Fighters is Dave Grohl and Chris Shiflett and Nate Mandel and uh, Franz Stahl, Rami Jaffe, Pat Smear, and until his untimely passing, Taylor Hawkins. Well, let's read those famous words from that anthem, Learn to Fly. Run and tell all of the angels this could take all night. Think I need a devil to help me get things right. Hook me up a new revolution, because this one is a lie. We sit around laughing and watch the last one die. Now I'm looking to the sky to save me, looking for a sign of life, looking for something to help me burn out bright. And I'm looking for a complication, looking because I'm tired of lying, make my way back home when I learn to fly high. I think I'm dying, nursing patience. It can wait one night. I'd give it all away if you give me one last try. We'll live happily ever trapped if you just save my life. Run and tell the angels that everything is all right. Now I'm looking to the sky to save me, looking for a sign of life. Looking for something to help me burn out bright. I'm looking for a complication. Looking because I'm tired of trying. Make my way back home when I learn to fly. Make my way back home when I learn to fly. Fly along with me. I can't quite make it alone. Try to make this life my own. Fly along with me. I can't quite make it alone. Try to make this life my own. I'm looking to the sky to save me. Looking for a sign of life. Looking for something to help me burn out bright. And I'm looking for a complication. Looking because I'm tired of trying. Make my way back home when I learn to fly. I'm looking to the sky to save me. Looking for a sign of life. Looking for something to help me burn out bright. And I'm looking for a complication. Looking because I'm tired of trying. Make my way back home when I learn to fly. Make my way back home when I learn to fly. Make my way back home when I learn to. Again, when you read the song and you can really hear it, uh, there's just a lot of repetition, and that's going to characterize a lot of great music. You see all the anaphoras. <laughs> You're using English terms again. What, what is an anaphora? <laughs> well, it's when you begin a phrase the same way, but you may end it. You change the ending out. Uh, so in this case, you, you hear a lot of it starts looking for and then looking for, but they're different endings uh, that end of that. The end of the song, make my way back home when I learn to fly high, make my ba- way back home when I learn to fly, make my way back home when I learn to. So it starts the same, but it ends different. 
uh, it drifts off. And in that particular example, that's how they ended the song, shortening it each time. The effect really only works when you sing and play it. It's lost when you speak it. The power is lost when you read it. Song lyrics are not poetry. They're not the same as poetry. Their power is very different, and their impact is very specific and targeted. Yeah, and there's a great word for songwriting that refers to the structure of it, and that's prosody, and that's where the melody line and the chords and the lyrics, everything blends so naturally that you feel like, oh, the song has always been this way. And, you know, the rhythm is going to bend the lyrics in the different shapes uh, and patterns that really aren't the natural flow of conversation or even in reading poetry. And uh, the percussive breaks lines on the page. I mean, the rhyme and repetition springs out in different places than it would in normal poetry. You know, for example, the word looking, uh, it's all over the song and your ear catches it when we sing it. But if you just look at it on the page, it looks random. I mean, I heard it said once that that song lyrics really exist in the air. And that's just a way of good thing, a good way of thinking about them. Well, when you watch a video of people watching the performance of this song or any of the Foo Fighters songs, really, all you see are arms raised, everyone singing in unison, everyone identifying something personal in these words. They're looking for something honest. They're looking for something to help them push through the absurd. And in this song, it's represented in the sky. Now, this is a great example of how music, or really poetry for, for that matter, but writing in general, takes a life of its own. In this case, the sky, it's symbolic. It's universal. Looking to the sky. But what does the sky represent? Are we supposed to look it up? Is it an archetype? Is the sky supposed to mean something unattainable? Is it supposed to mean something spiritual? You know, for each person, it's going to be something totally different different. They get to answer that question. And you can see that they are when you look at the eyes of people in the stadium, or if you see them in the field of the festival. Kelly Clarkson wanted to know the answer to the question, what's in the sky? And she asked the band that one time on her show, what's this song about? Uh, At least what was it about when you originally wrote it? And Grohl revealed the secret. And he said, at the time, I wanted to be a pilot. I wanted to learn to fly. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the genius of the song is that it's vague enough to allow every person to write their own story into it. And, uh, you know, I've seen that interview, too. And the Foo Fighters absolutely know the song is about more than being a pilot. And if you ever had any doubt, those doubts were laid to rest with the Rockin' 1000. Oh, yes. Tell us what is the Rockin' 1000. It's a very cool thing. Uh, so in 2014, a man by the name of Fabio Zaffanini uh, had a vision to get the Foo Fighters to come to his little small town in Italy. And his plan was insane. And uh, he wanted to unite 1,000 musicians, uh, drummers and guitars and bassists and vocalists and everything. And he did it. Uh, and in July of 2015, over 1,000 musicians gathered in a field in a little town in this uh, northeast Italy, this little town called Sassena, and together, in unison, 
all 1,000 of them played this this song, Learn to Fly. And I mean, it's an amazing YouTube video. Everybody should watch it. And at the end of the performance, Fabio appeals to the band and asks them to come play in their little town of Sassena. And he's, he's talking about how hard it is for dreams to come true in his part of Italy and what it would mean for them uh, to there and to come there. And, of course, the band soon tweeted out, and here's my Italian, which is as bad as my French. <laughs> Si vediamo a presto, Sassana, or see you soon, Sassana. So exciting. <laughs> I mean, I've watched the YouTube, too, and it makes you want to cry. It's so beautiful and so passionate. Who would say no to that? Those musicians of every age, men, women, children, jumping up and down, waving their arms, singing with their hearts, pounding the drums. <laughs> well, exactly. And why wouldn't they? I mean, uh, three months after the Rockin' 1000 video went viral, the Foo Fighters played in Sasena on the night of the concert. Dave Grohl admitted to the audience that their video had made him cry. Oh, he's human. <laughs> yes. This group of musicians represent everything that, that the Foo Fighters are giving back to the world. I mean, energy and passion and uh, the fight and the will to live and live well. I mean, it's who the Foo Fighters are. And um, there are endless examples of this band doing just that. Uh, on their tour of Iceland, uh, the night before the concert they, they were going to play, they were out in the country having dinner. And they drove past a barn where a local band of punk rockers were practicing the Foo Fighters stopped and they went in and jammed with this little local band called Nilfisk and it later on invited them to play their original song, Jacking Around, as an <laughs> opening act for the Foos. And uh, the front man for this band at that time was about 16 years old. Can't even imagine. Well, in May of 2005, they released one of their most recognizable and highly regarded of all Foo Fighters songs, Best of You. Prince even performed it during the Super Bowl halftime show. Let's read these lyrics and talk about why this song has resonated around the world. I've got a confession to make. I'm your fool. Everyone's got their chains to break. Holding you, were you born to resist or be abused? Is someone getting the best, the best, the best, the best of you? Is someone getting the best, the best, the best, the best of you? Are you gone and on to someone new? I needed somewhere to hang my head without your noose. You gave me something that I didn't have, but had no use. I was too weak to give in, too strong to lose. My heart is under arrest again, but I break loose. My head is giving me life or death, but I can't choose. I swear I'll never give in. I refuse. Is someone giving the best, the best, the best, the best of you? Is someone getting the best, the best, the best, the best, the best of you? Has someone taken your faith? It's real, the pain you feel, your trust, you must confess. Is someone getting the best, the best, the best, the best of you? Oh, has someone taken your faith? It's real, the pain you feel, the life, the love you die to heal, the hope that starts, the broken hearts, your trust, you must confess. Is someone getting the best, the best, the best, the best of you? Is someone getting the best, the best, the best, the best of you? I've got a confession, my friend. I'm no fool. I'm getting tired of starting again somewhere new. Were you born to resist or be abused? I swear I'll never give in. I refuse. Is someone giving, getting the best, the best, the best of you? Is someone getting the best, the best, the best of you? Has someone taken your faith? 
It's real. The pain you feel, your trust, you must confess, is someone getting the best, the best, the best, the best of you. Well, first of all, the word best is repeated 40 (laughs) times. I heard it. Repetition is emphasis. We know that. This song is about that. We all have secrets in our heads about ourselves, and we all fight something inside to overcome the worst in us. This song is a personal fight song. It's an anthem of recovery from brokenness. It's also a lot about the drums. Uh, You know, Taylor Hawkins inspired the millions who watched him lead the band with this anthem, and his drumming was raw and He pounds these uh, eight-note accents that you can hear from the back of a stadium, and there's so much power and energy, and it's driving, and it builds. And, you know, in an interview during that 2005 tour, uh, a journalist from the Globe and Mail asked Hawkins what kept his work interesting. He said this, I am scared to death every time I get on stage. I have insane stage fright. If Nate screws up, the beat goes on. If Dave screws up, everyone laughs. But if I drop the beat... We can all go down in flames. It's like jumping off of a cliff every time. And I would like to point out, for people who are not musicians, whenever you see a band, the drummer is driving the bus, always. The most important person in the band. Well, you're right. We don't even we don't even think about that. I, you know, I don't know how uh, you cannot be nervous every time. I mean, so much <laughs> is at stake. Tens of thousands of people have spent hundreds of dollars, maybe more than that, And they come with these astronomically high expectations to have their lives changed, to be inspired. I mean, I can't even imagine the weight of it. But I think I understand at least in part the heart of it. In 2011, the band released their seventh studio album, Wasting Light. It would eventually win four Grammys, including the Best Rock Album. And I think how they created that album really captures who they are as a band, what they represent, and why their essence reverberates around the globe. Tell us that story, Gary. Well, they decided to record it in Grohl's garage with no computers, no Pro Tools, nothing. I mean, the album is messy, and it's distorted, it's over the top, and they they had to rehearse for three weeks to even do it because they used old-fashioned editing techniques that didn't allow for mistakes to be fixed in post-production like you can do with computers. Well, that seems, you know, fun, but why do it? Isn't that kind of unprofessional? Uh, Indeed, it is not. (laughs) They wanted it to be real. Uh, And Grohl speaks to that at the Grammys after they won Best Album of the Year, and his words kind of became controversial almost immediately. He said, "Um, this is a great honor because this record was a special record for our band. Rather than go to the best studio in the world, down the street in Hollywood, and rather than use all the fanciest computers that money can buy, we made this one in my garage with some microphones and a tape machine. It's not about being perfect. It's not about sounding absolutely correct. It's not about what goes on in a computer. What's controversial about that? Well, it's controversial because that's what everybody else is doing. (laughs) All right. Uh, it, it was taken as an insult uh, to other people in the industry uh, because they're using auto-tune to fix their voices so they never go off key and any number of editing tricks that could make someone like you or me sound like Rihanna with the right computer. Imagine <laughs> that. You know, Pro Tools is the recording software that can make anyone sound like they're good. Uh, and so the next day, Grohl released a statement clarifying his comment, and this is what he said. 
I love music, electronic or acoustic, it doesn't matter to me. The simple act of creating music is a beautiful gift that all human beings are blessed with. And a diversity of one musician's personality to the next is what makes music so exciting and human. That's exactly what I was referring to, the human element. That thing that happens when a song speeds up slightly or a vocal goes a little sharp. That thing that makes people sound like people. Somewhere along the line, those things became bad things, and with the great advances in digital recording technology over the years, they became easily fixed. The end result, in my humble opinion, a lot of music that sounds perfect but lacks personality. The one thing that makes music so exciting in the first place, and unfortunately, some of these great advances have taken the focus off of the actual craft or performance. Look, I'm not Ingve Malmsteen. I'm not John Bottom. Hell, I'm not even Josh Groban for any matter. But I try really effing hard so that I don't have to rely on anything but my hands and my heart to play a song. I do the best that I possibly can within my limitations and accept that it sounds like me because that's what I think is most important. It should be real, right? Everybody wants something real. You know, uh, as an interesting aside to go along with that, um, if you ever listen to live orchestra music on uh, NPR or any format like that, they prefer when you hear the concert goers coughing and making noise in the background, it means that the recording is live and the orchestra is really as good as you're hearing. Well, I want to go back to that line, everybody wants something real. There's that word again that brings us back to Camus, and we've heard it in almost you know all of these songs that we've talked about. We do want real. We want honest. We want someone with the courage to show us what real and honest looks like. The history of the Foo Fighters is just one crazy example of this after another. In Sweden, in June of 2015, they were in the second song of their show. The show was supposed to have 26 songs. It was in front of 53,000 people. Grohl landed wrong because, you know, it is a rock concert and he's jumping and all that kind of stuff. And he lands wrong on his ankle and he collapses. He broke his leg. The band didn't know what had happened and they just kept playing until Grohl grabbed the microphone uh, and he had to go off stage. But he said this, you have my promise right now that the Foo Fighters, we're going to come back and finish this show. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to go to the hospital. I'm going to fix my leg, but then I'm going to come back and we're going to play for you again. I'm so sorry. <laughs> wow. Uh, that's getting a little bit extra for your money than you expected. Um, you know, so he handed over the show to Taylor Hawkins, who led the band till Grohl came back an hour later. And they had to cancel a few dates, but by the 4th of July, the, they had solved the problem. They built a giant throne made just for the occasion. Uh, the Foo Fighters came out for their 20th anniversary 4th of July blowout at RFK. And Grohl, who screams and, and jumps around, led the band sitting down on this amazing throne. Uh, that tour continued on with 60 more shows. And that's what I mean by fighting the absurd. Taylor, Nate, Chris, Pat, Rami, Chris, Franz, Will, and Dave lead with their lyrics, their beat, their riffs, but also their example. This is what not surrendering either to the absurd or to philosophical suicide looks like. This is what not giving in looks like. This is what finding the best in yourself looks like. Dave Grohl spoke about what it felt like when Cobain died, and he said at that point he didn't know if he ever wanted to play music again. But then he realized that music was the one thing that healed him over the course of his entire life. 
it had saved his life more than once. You know, I can absolutely understand and agree with this 100%. Music absolutely has been there for me personally and has kept me sane, really, in the worst moments of my own life. Well, unfortunately, Dave and the rest of the band are going to have to face the full force and pain of the absurd in a very personal way one more time. On March 20th, Foo Fighters played Lollapalooza in Argentina. They ended their set with Everlong, as they usually do, with Hawkins on the drum. At the end of the song, Hawkins tossed his drumsticks to the audience, threw his arm over Grohl's shoulder, took a bow with the rest of the band. Although no one had any idea, that would be his last performance. And that night, Dave Grohl ended the show with these ironic words. I don't say goodbye. Dave Grohl told the cloud before kicking it off, I don't like to say goodbye. I know that we'll always come back. If you come back, we'll come back. Will you come back? If you come back, we'll come back. So then I won't have to say goodbye. Hawkins said goodbye, but the music he made, the energy he emitted, does not. And so we end this episode saying thank you, Foo Fighters. Thank you for pushing forward, encouraging the world to not let the world get the best of us. For inspiring us to look to the sky, to learn to fly, and to help us hold on to the moments of eternity when they come. Thank you for sharing with us in this episode on a different sort of book, The Music of the Foo Fighters. And as always, please feel free to connect with us on any of our social media, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn. Uh, Email us, tweet to us. Uh, If you're a teacher, visit our website for some educational support. Uh, at howtolovelitpodcast.com where you can also find some merchandise and some shirts and (laughs) mugs and fun stuff. Uh, So uh, if you're a friend, uh, check out the merch on the website as well. And in any case, if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. When you share about us, we grow. Peace out. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.